Hello, and welcome to the Unscientific Method podcast, where we unpack the research and lives of young scientists doing amazing things around us at the University of British Columbia. Your usual host, Beth, is either out experimenting or maybe snowboarding out on a beautiful sunny day in Vancouver. My name is Sarah, and today's episode could really be titled MRI is the Real Sci-Fi, and I'm here joined with PhD candidate Sarah Morris. Sarah is a PhD student in physics, looking to improve MRI technologies for imaging the brain and the spine. Sarah Morris did her undergraduate degree in physics at the University of Cambridge and then completed a master's there studying childhood brain development using diffusion MRI data. She also did several interesting work terms involving the words particle accelerator and ultraluminous infrared galaxies. Sarah moved her way across the pond to Vancouver, Canada, and studied her PhD at UBC in physics in 2017, supervised by Dr. Cornelia Lull. Her research is funded by an NSERC scholarship and involves developing, validating, and applying a variety of advanced MRI techniques, including myelin water imaging, diffusion tensor imaging, and inhomogeneous magnetization transfer. In particular, she is investigating MRI metrics, which could be used to quantify tissue damage after spinal cord injury. Yep, that's right. <laughs> I think Sarah is the hero we all need in science because she is really working on the struggle of taking some things from research into the clinic. Tell us a little bit about your research. Right, well, you you summarized it really well there. Um, yeah, as you say, I'm looking at advanced MRI techniques. These are techniques that are a bit beyond what you would currently receive if you went to the hospital, which can tell us more about the brain and the spinal cord, details about the tissue. So things like the health of the nerves and whether there's any inflammation or edema in the tissue, things like that. And to do that, we need both advanced MRI scans. So you have to be able to program the scanner and also advanced analysis of the data. So there's two sides to being able to get this high level of detail from an MRI scan. So what sort of information do you typically get from an MRI scan? Standardly, we have, they're called T1 and T2 weighted images, and they're like photographs, they're, they're pictures. And the contrast is generated by fairly basic aspects of the tissue. So you'd be able to see in the, in the brain, there's gray matter, white matter, and CSS. And you'd be able to see really clearly the difference between those different tissues. And you'd also really clearly be able to see something like a brain tumor. But the numbers that you would get in the image are not a physical thing. You know, you, you, you could look at a pixel and say that's 1002, um, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just how the scanner recorded that number. Whereas some of the techniques I'm looking at, we would say that pixel has 23% and that's actually the amount of, for example, myelin in that pixel. Myelin, in case that's not a familiar word, is the fatty covering which protects nerves cells in the brain and spinal cord. So you're trying to get those numbers to actually have a representative value. Exactly. Yeah. So most of your work is the software component? 
My PhD has really spanned most aspects of developing MRI sequences. So I have done some what we call pulse programming. So that's where you write code for the for the scanner to play. It's almost like music you could play on the piano. You kind of write out, play this pulse here. So I've done that. I've also done a lot of data analysis. So just taking the brain scans and seeing how what the numbers are in each area, making graphs. Data analysis is really just like, what do I do with all this information? Absolutely. Condensing it. It's it's always a problem of too much data, not too little. <laughs> you, you can only have how many graphs in a paper and there's so much you can always do. <laughs> so um, what are the main flaws in the MRI that you're trying to fill the gap to? One of the main focuses of my research is actually spinal cord injury. And after someone gets a spinal cord injury, there's a small area of impact in the spinal cord. And immediately after that, a whole range of things happen in the tissue. So there's going to be inflammation. There's going to be nerve damage, nerve potentially nerves lost over weeks to months afterwards, myelin loss, microbleeds. There's all kinds of things happening. Um, and on a standard Standard MRI, you would just see a big area of damage. And that's still very useful information. And people have, you know, will measure how long the damage is and things like that. But it doesn't seem to be particularly predictive of how well the person can recover from their injury and whether they're going to regain function or not. And so the real gap we're trying to fill here is to have imaging techniques that could give us more predictive information about how severe the injury is and could help to direct physiotherapy and things like that. If you could say this person, the tracks that lead to their legs are less damaged than we expect. And therefore it's really important that they start physiotherapy for that, et cetera. So that's the big aim. And so we're trying to develop myelin and axon sensitive MRI techniques to give us more information after a spinal cord injury. And I think I do remember you mentioning it's closer to usually an MRI is like a picture and you're saying this information would be almost live, which would be insane. It really would be. And how, how do you feel like, like, how do you feel like it's difficult to put this into the clinic? There are lots of barriers to putting it into the clinic. That's really the most tricky stage. Yeah. Well, first of all, MRI scans are comparatively long compared to, you know, an x-rays a second. Even our simplest MRI scans are a minute or two long. And some of these more complicated MRI scans can be up to 10 minutes long. Um, and so getting the MRI time, and particularly if someone is sick or has a spinal cord injury, they don't want to lie in the scanner for an hour, <laughs> which I've definitely done for my research, but I have had probably 30 MRIs since I started in this area. Um, yeah, so length of scan, analyzing the scan is tricky. So you, you need people who are familiar with the technique. You know, not every doctor is going to be able to analyze a diffusion MRI scan. It's tricky, but it's been done with some other techniques, so it's possible. <laughs> How did you become the researcher that you are now? Tell me your journey. My journey. Well, I chose physics because I liked math in school, in like high school, but I 
probably wrongly thought that there wasn't as much application of a math degree than there was of a physics degree. And so I decided to do physics. Then within physics, I had no idea which direction I wanted to go. I was interested in astrophysics. I was interested in all different kinds of physics. So I basically tried most of them out and did internships every summer in a different research lab. But then the one that really stuck with me was what I started doing in my master's, which was analyzing brain scans. And this was from from children. Um, We were looking at how socioeconomic status can affect brain development in children. And I just found it fascinating. I loved looking at the brains. I loved analyzing the data in all different ways, making colorful graphs. Graphs are my favorite, honestly. And I also just felt like it was it was really obvious to me that it was a good thing to do and a direct application that could help human beings. As soon as I started doing that research project, I was like, that this is what I want to do my PhD in. I always kind of knew I wanted to do a PhD, even though I didn't know what I was interested in research-wise. So... If you want to do a PhD, there's no definite reason you just want to, it feels like. I really would like you to tell us about some of your earlier work terms, because I thought they were so out of my realm of knowledge. They were so interesting. They were a little while ago now, but the first one I did was in the astrophysics department at University of Oxford. I was working on analyzing data from ultraluminous infrared galaxies. They were, you know, millions of light years away, and so just looked like a fuzzy blob. But when you applied a lot of different types of processing, all of which I had to learn about from old textbooks, you could start to get information about the way in which the galaxy was moving and turning. And then that could give information about how the the galaxy formed, um, whether it was through a merger event. Anyone who actually does astrophysics is going to tell me this is all wrong, but this is what I remember from my undergrad. (laughs) But I I liked that. And I liked the image analysis part of that, which is obviously carried on to my PhD. But I think I just felt like they were too far away. And I really like that. See, I really like that you mentioned that because I know that I really struggled in previous research where I was like, okay, this doesn't feel like it can impact anything even in the next five years. And I kind of, when moving forward, I was like, oh, I really need something that I can see. And it's interesting to hear that in physics. Yeah, definitely. I think having something tangible, but then I think that people who work in astrophysics probably do feel like these galaxies are like very important and tangible to them. And the knowledge that they gain by analyzing that is so relevant. And it is, yeah. And it is, it is. It's just what you find for you. What you can commit that many years to. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sarah, tell us about a typical workday in your field. I would say that I write some emails. I go to the MRI physics group meeting, which is always interesting. And MRI has such diverse different types of scans. So a lot of the time I go to the meeting and I've never even heard of the type of MRI that they're doing. And then I will be mostly analyzing data. In particular, at the moment, I'm comparing MRI scans with um, histology staining to check whether some of our scans that we we claim are myelin sensitive, whether they actually match up with myelin in the tissue and things like that. So that's that's called validation in MRI, and we it's an important step. I think you were saying you get these body donations, brain and spinal cord, right? Yeah. And then you could essentially for Sology slice up little areas of the brain that you want and then dye them to look for these neurons and axons and myelin. 
Exactly. That's exactly what we do. Yeah. So I have data. I'm lucky to work with data from the International Spinal Cord Injury Biobank, um, which is a biobank based in Vancouver of people who died acutely of a spinal cord injury. And yeah, as you say, actually, first we send the cords to the MRI and scan them while they're still completely intact. And then we cut them into very, very, very thin slices and stain them with dyes which attach to myelin or axons. And then I quantify how much staining and what the MRI metric is in different areas and just do a simple correlation of those two things. And we always hope that the MRI agrees with the histology and we can say, yes, we are measuring myelin because histology is the gold standard and the truth about what's in the tissue, but you can't do histology when the person's still alive. (laughs) Yeah. So MRI is what we're aiming for. Yeah, that's really cool. So then you do this, I don't know, matching of data and very tangible histology. Yeah. What, what other things kind of compose your day? A lot of making graphs in Python. That's, I feel like that's one of my key skills is making nice looking graphs, Python graphs. And then I'm often working on either a paper or an abstract or a presentation. I've been presenting all virtually, but at a few conferences this year, I'm wrapping up my PhD this year. So it's, I'm still doing some analysis, but it's more about writing the papers and presenting your work as you get towards the end. So yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's definitely understated how much writing and how much uh, talking is involved. Yeah, definitely. I think particularly the writing. <laughs> you are literally going to be a doctor soon. <laughs> yes. Are you Are you scheduling your exams or anything anytime soon? Um, I'm, I'm starting to write my thesis at the beginning of March. And then everyone says it takes three months to write it pretty much. Like two months to write and one month to cry or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's my aim. Maybe I can schedule that like intermittently. Yeah. So two, days, <laughs> yeah. two days write, one day cry, maybe like that all the way through. And then I'm hoping to send that off to the um, examiners in June and then start scheduling all the defenses. In physics, you have to do a departmental defense and then your main PhD defense. So it all takes a long time. Um, And if it extends into the autumn term, that's okay because my NSERC funding continues until May of 2023. So I've got time. What do you mostly hope to achieve from this project? I think if I could have I'm starting to collect data in vivo from people spinal cords not people who have a spinal cord injury because um, that's a little more complicated with ethics and things but right now we're doing healthy controls and if I could get some really beautiful inhomogeneous magnetization transfer in vivo maps that show aspects to the spinal cord microstructure and everyone loves them and decides to start using that technique that would that would be great <laughs> that would be wild to see it actually go to the clinic yeah really cool so when are you starting those in vivo so in vivo means the people are going to be actually scanned it seems like just healthy individuals exactly yeah we got a seed grant to do this and we're just starting with 10 healthy people maybe i'll even be one of them although i probably have to be sitting at the scanner console we always yeah we always ask the other mri researchers to volunteer for our studies we just got the ethics um is currently in the process of being approved so i would say hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll scan the first person super exciting yeah 
Your most interesting technique. Most interesting MRI technique. I will say myelin water imaging because it's really a loyalty thing. Myelin water imaging was developed at UBC in the 90s and it's kind of our thing. And it's a really accurate way of measuring myelin in the brain and the spinal cord. And it's been used in clinical trials for multiple sclerosis. It's, I would say it's compared to some of the other techniques I use, it's much more accepted and more towards clinical practice use. So yeah, it's a really cool technique. The, the maps look beautiful. I think it's really cool. Um, as an undergraduate student anywhere, I did my undergraduate on the East Coast. You did yours at Cambridge, which is very impressive. You kind of think of your professors as like just people teaching you textbook things. You're just like, oh, they're teaching me metabolism again, year three. But it is really cool to kind of be on this side and be like, wow, I actually respect that these people, you know, spend 30 years on whatever lipid nanoparticles or water myelin technique and, and they made something now. Yeah, absolutely. I think I have a lot of respect for people who make it in academia. It's a hard, it's a hard path to follow. And it's um, not the same skill as being good at exams. The person Shada who kind of chatted with Sarah earlier was was asking about research and Sarah very, very bravely talked about imposter syndrome, which just a week earlier, I'd kind of told the group, like, I'm really struggling with imposter syndrome. I don't know what to do. And then you mentioned like, yeah, just getting over that. And you are obviously a very brilliant person. You have a really bright future ahead of you. And to think that even someone like you could struggle with that oh yeah definitely I think I don't know anyone doing a PhD who doesn't have imposter syndrome sometimes actually I think it's dealing with very tricky things and a lot of the time there's no one to ask if you're stuck you just have to struggle through on your own and that process is tough and can make you feel like you're not smart enough to be doing what you're doing which is not true but um, I definitely had a, a at the beginning of my PhD the fact that solving all my problems was entirely on me was very um, hard because previously if I ever had a problem with a you know a homework problem or something there's always people you can ask and the solution is there somewhere whereas with this it's like no one knows more about it than you very very quickly in a PhD no one knows more about what you're working on than you do really and so you can definitely go to people for your advice for advice your supervisor other people in the field but it'll require you to explain what you're doing for all they know how to help you. And it may be that they don't have a solution. So I'm going to rapid fire some questions at you, Sarah. You ready? This is like Jeopardy. You have to have like a buzzer and stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, quick answers. What's your biggest success so far? I think probably getting my NSERC scholarship. That really changed things. Yeah, these are insanely competitive scholarships. It was the second time I applied, so don't give up after the first time. And it really felt, it made me feel like I was in charge of my own PhD because I had my own funding. And so I could decide what I wanted to do, obviously, you know, in discussion with my supervisor, but it made me feel really in control of what I was doing. No, that's really impressive. An answer at this level. What are you most proud of with your research? We just published a paper that I'm pretty proud of. And then also I've been doing some outreach. I did the three minute thesis competition last year. And I always feel proud of the outreach things because I think it's so important that scientists don't just stay in little bunkers and not tell anyone what they're doing because then everyone will mistrust scientists more than they already do. <laughs> 
Yeah, there there has been a really big push recently so that maybe that people get more appreciation and trust in science for sure. What's been your biggest failure? The first data set I got when I was starting my PhD was again with children. I think they were 11 year olds and we were looking for myelin differences correlated with reading ability. I just analyzed this data very, very carefully and I didn't really find any differences. The the myelin of the people who were good and bad at reading was, was the same. And that was really like, am I analyzing it wrong? is are we not powered to see this statistically or you know what's going on and I went to my supervisor and she's like okay well that's just that's a result too Um, but I remember feeling very stressed about that. (laughs) I recently had a genetic sequence of a person with autism where I was kind of trying to find any hint of it and I did so much I worked on it for so long and at the end it's like well I'm not sure. Yeah okay I guess I'll just move on like I don't know but Yeah, supervisors are used to it. And that's an important result too. And at some point you also have to stop analyzing it because you can really start to create results where there are none if you you keep going. So there's a point where your brain has to step in and be like, there is nothing there. You can't find anything because there isn't anything. Let it go. (laughs) What has been the biggest surprise for you in research? I think the sort of the thing I was saying before, which is how quickly you become the expert in the thing you're working on, because you're spending all day looking at this thing. And so I come out of undergrad thinking everyone in research is so smart and they know everything. And that is true, but they aren't doing the very niche specific research that you're doing. And actually very quickly, a year into your PhD, you know the most about that one very tiny thing. (laughs) And so that was a surprise. And one last more serious question. I know that Shada kind of asked, have you ever experienced gender bias being in physics, like kind of a math oriented degree and and what your experience was with that? I've never, I feel lucky that I've never experienced any overt gender discrimination. I've definitely felt a little alone sometimes. I think my undergraduate was probably 70% men, 30% women. So a lot of the time in smaller classes, I'd be one, the one woman or maybe one other. And sometimes I think that did add to the imposter syndrome, starting to feel like, why am I the only girl here? What's going on? But I've never never experienced any discrimination like that, that I know of. Whenever I read about the fact that if you just change the name at the top of a CV, John will get more job offers than Jane will, that always really depresses me because you you never know if that's happening to you. But but, um, I've never felt it myself. Yeah, I think actually NASA just started doing blind naming. Yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Oh, the other thing to say is that um, another benefit of being in MRI physics is it's the most. My supervisor is a woman and our whole research group is at least 50-50 and maybe more women than men. I feel like it's a little bit of a refuge for people coming from physics where the gender balance is not even more on the biology side. You start to get more more women. <laughs> so yeah. What is your favorite hobby? I read a lot. Someone told me to take note of how many books I was reading, something I've never done before because I just read. I read while I'm brushing my teeth, which everyone 
says is weird, but I just started keeping track and I think I'm on book seven in January. I also love skiing and in the summer hiking. I feel like that's the answer of everyone in Vancouver, but I like outdoors stuff less when it's raining. And do you have any last words for maybe younger listeners that are just trying to figure themselves out? It's good to try things and not worry too much about long-term plans. As I, I did, I tried internships for a few, you know, eight weeks at a time in a whole different range of areas. And that really showed me what I wanted to do. You don't have to commit to anything for a really long time, but trying lots of different things will start to narrow down what you're interested in. Perseverance is the most important thing in anything. And even if you feel like you're not the smartest one in your research group or that your research isn't going well, if you keep going with it, that's really the only thing that matters. No, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting, Sarah. It's been, it's been really pleasant. Wishing you the best Friday and I hope you have a good time. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to us. And if you want to reach us on social media, you can follow us at the scientific method on Instagram and on Twitter at at scientific UBC. You can send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at Gmail at the scientific method at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Anything would be great. Just a hello or a question or anything like that. So it would be perfect. And bye. Thank you.